Genesis chapter 41, verse 25 to 32. Now this is just recapping what we have already seen last week. And Joseph said unto Pharaoh, the dream of Pharaoh is one. God hath showed Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good kind are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dream is one. And the seven thin and ill-favoured kind that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blasted with the east wind shall be seven years of famine. This is the thing which I have spoken unto Pharaoh. What God is about to do, he showeth unto Pharaoh. Behold, there come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, and there shall arise after them seven years of famine, and all the plenty shall be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine shall consume the land, and the plenty shall not be known in the land by reason of that famine following, for it shall be very grievous. And for that the dream was doubled unto Pharaoh twice. It is because the thing is established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. Let's, let's pray and commit this time to the Lord. Father, we thank you once again for this opportunity to look into your word. We thank you that we can trust it fully, not just with our souls, but every day of our lives. And we pray for your blessing upon us now as we seek to be fed through it. We pray that the Spirit will be working within our hearts this morning as we seek to honour you and to live lives that are committed to you, that we might follow our Saviour completely, that we might honour you as we sought to honour our mothers this morning, that we might honour you completely with our lives, with everything that we have day after day. You deserve everything from us because you have given all for us. That you gave your only begotten Son to save sinners like us is still beyond our understanding. Lord, but you have called us your own and we seek to honour you this morning. Through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, last week we discovered that Joseph had been in prison for a full two years after he had this encounter with this butler and the baker, if you remember then. One ended up dying and one ended up living. And as it happened, two full years have gone by. Joseph is still in prison, even though he had asked the butler to show a kind word for him and, and to share that with Pharaoh. So he was hoping he would do that, but two years had passed and he had heard nothing. But as it happened, and as we always know, sometimes people say God works in mysterious ways, right? Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that God works in strange ways, but when something's a mystery, it's not known. Okay, When the Bible speaks of a mystery, it's something that's simply not, not known, not discovered. And God had been working in the meantime, and he was about to give Pharaoh a dream. And this dream was timed just perfectly, as God always times these things perfectly. He gave Pharaoh a dream of what was about to occur for the next 14 years in his kingdom. And as it turned out, God brought to the butler's memory, to the butler's mind, his encounter with Joseph. And jo Because Pharaoh did not know the interpretation of the dream, or troubled him so much, but despite calling on all the people that he knew, his magicians and his wise men and his priests, no one could give him the interpretation of it. And so the butler remembered Joseph and he, he approached Pharaoh and said, Pharaoh, I know this man. Two years ago, I was with him in prison when you, when you were about to chop my head off. And he gave me the interpretation of my dream. And I 
think he can do the same for you. And so immediately Joseph was brought out of the prison. They prepared him. Remember, he had to get he had to shave, get dressed up nicely. He cleaned himself up and he presented himself before Pharaoh. Pharaoh shared the dream with him, and Joseph then gives him the interpretation which we have just read in verses 25 to 32. Seven years of plenty, seven years of a bumper crop, as we would say here, followed by seven years of absolute famine, so bad that they would forget how good the previous years were. But Joseph doesn't just provide the interpretation of the dream. Joseph now provides a solution. He now tells uh, Pharaoh not just what God was going to do, but what Pharaoh should now do in preparation for this time. So if you look at verses 33 to 36, it says, Now therefore, let Pharaoh look out a man discreet and wise, and set him over the land of Egypt. So let Pharaoh do this, and let him appoint officers over the land, and take up the fifth part of the land of Egypt in the seven plenteous years. And let them gather all the food of those good years that come, and lay up corn under the hand of Pharaoh, and let them keep food in the cities. And that food shall be for store to the land against the seven years of famine, which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land perish not through famine. So the advice that was provided by Joseph, or the Lord provided to Pharaoh through Joseph, I should say, was that he should appoint someone who was intelligent and wise over all the land of his kingdom, who would then have offices under him, in other words, workers or um, really they're tax collectors, when you think of it, right? Let's set, let's set up this system where you will collect 20% of this bumper crop that's going to come in for the next seven years and you, Pharaoh, you store them. Let's store them in the cities so when the time of famine comes, we'll be well prepared for it. So how did Pharaoh respond to this advice by a man who had just been in jail the day before? By someone who wasn't even an Egyptian, Someone who was living in a prison who was an accused adulterer. Well, let's have a look. Verse 37 says, And the thing was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said unto his servants, Can we find such a one as this? A man in whom the Spirit of God is? Now, how's that for a question, huh? How do we find someone this wise who can manage this type of thing for us? Pharaoh and everyone around him, when they listened to what Joseph had just explained, what was coming, and then what he had suggested as a solution to that, agreed. They all said, that makes sense what he's saying. It's actually really good advice. And so the solution was there but now, well, who do I pick out of all of my kingdom? I mean, I asked all the wise men to come and interpret the dream. None of them could actually provide it. If it wasn't for this guy over here, we would all be in a pretty serious situation in the coming years. Where do I find someone of this intelligence and wisdom to oversee the work for the next 14 years? You know, as we celebrate Mother's Day, I'm reminded of the beginning of Proverbs 31. Go, turn to Proverbs 31 with me and look at verse 10, because the beginning of this particular passage that we often read about a virtuous woman begins with the same type of question. Proverbs 31, 
verse 10. It says there, who can find a virtuous woman? For her price is far above rubies. The heart of her husband does safely trust in her. That's what Pharaoh needed. He was someone he could trust. So that he shall have no need of spoil. Which means he doesn't have to go to war to get stuff. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeketh wool and flax and worketh willingly with her hands. She is like the merchant's ship. She bringeth her food from afar. She riseth also while it is yet night and giveth me to her household and a portion to her maidens. Now, Pharaoh needed someone very wise, dependable, someone he could trust to oversee the affairs of his household. You see, Pharaoh's household was the household that governed the entire nation of Egypt. They had the responsibility to govern a whole country most important thing in his, for him was the welfare and management of the food in his own kingdom because if his people starved two things could happen many would die but also they might rebel against him as well for not managing his affairs properly or the kingdom properly but let me ask you here today what's more important what's more important a kingdom or a family What's more important, a household of Pharaoh or your own household? Was Pharaoh's household more important than your household? The job of a godly woman, of a virtuous woman, is very important. Because in managing the affairs of a household... And God has equipped women with certain abilities that men simply do not have. And generally do not have. That's why the Bible tells them that if a man finds a good woman, he finds a, a wife, he finds a good thing. And, if, and if, a, if a man finds, where it says here, a virtuous woman, her price is far above rubies. Now, why would her price be so, so far above rubies? Because there is great value in what they do. Pharaoh was looking for a man who would be trustworthy, who'd be wise, who'd be diligent to manage the affairs of his kingdom so his people wouldn't starve. Now let me share with you that a husband or a father needs a godly woman to manage the affairs of the household to feed her own children, not just with bread, but with the word of God. That is the most important job in this world. A man who finds a virtuous woman and says it's someone who he can trust, that he knows that she will do him good, that she will work diligently for the good of the household. Her wisdom is not just earthly wisdom, but it's heavenly wisdom, just as Joseph's was. Joseph didn't come up with that plan himself. Jo Joseph didn't come up with the interpretation of the dream, dream himself. God gave Joseph that interpretation and the solution. Godly women, godly mothers, grandmothers, wives are critical for godly households. The Pharaoh realized that he had such a person in Joseph, a person he could trust to oversee the affairs of his household, and if Joseph was now precious to Pharaoh, 
then a godly woman or a mother is likewise precious to her household. Let's see Pharaoh's choice here. In verse 39 and 40 of Genesis 41, it says, And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, For as much as God had showed thee all this, he's speaking to Joseph now, well, since God showed you all this stuff, there is none so discreet and wise as thou art, as you. Thou, you, shall be over my house. And according unto thy word shall all my people be ruled. Only in the throne will I be greater than thou. And that was Pharaoh's choice. A prisoner, who, a fellow who was in prison a, a day before, uh, was now given the reins of the kingdom. Pharaoh saw what was obviously right in, his, in, front, right in front of his eyes. He saw that. He didn't need to go looking throughout his whole kingdom to find the solution or the person for this job. He had him right in front of him. And he chose Joseph to be that person over all of his kingdom. It was obvious that he had the Spirit of God in him, the wisdom in him. And so he called him to manage his affairs and to rule over his own people. Now, sometimes we fail to see what, what's right in front of our eyes, don't we? As people, often we go looking for things. To People in this world, they look for happiness. They look for joy. They look for things. And sometimes the solution, the answer was right there with them the whole time. We often show more appreciation for things that are common, mundane, and sometimes not precious at all. Things such as traditions, things such as money and career, wealth, assets, power, habits, technology, whatever else it is that people value in this world. Sometimes even their own feelings are more important than what's good and right. Often we fail to love our own family, our friends, our church, brothers and sisters, and we become poorer because of it. When we don't value the thing that God has given us as a gift, we dishonour Him. When we, don't, we, when we don't honour our mother and our father, we dishonour God at the same time. When we don't show appreciation to our mothers, our fathers, our family, our wives, our husbands, when we don't appreciate what God has put right in front of us, what we are saying is that we are unthankful to the one who gave us that gift. We become poorer. Most of us know, growing up in families, it's often the people you hurt the most and the people easiest to hurt are the people that are with you. It's because we take them for granted. But there's another level here. Yes, we are to appreciate the people that God has given to us, whether it is to bless them, to appreciate them, to show them love, because that's one of the signs that you're a believer in the Lord, that you love the people that God gives you. But when we speak of that thing which is the most precious, we must always keep in mind that the most precious thing we have compared to anything else in this world is the Lord Jesus Christ. And how much appreciation do we show to Him in our lives? How do we honour Him? You see, if you possess the Son of God this morning, if you are in possession of Him, if you have received Him as your Saviour and your King, 
then there is none that compares to him. Forget about rubies and emeralds and diamonds and gold. That is all useless stuff. That is like dirt under your feet compared to having Christ as your saviour. In fact, he shared this same thing with his own disciples. He said, he that loveth father or mother more than me, he's not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In fact, if you love your own life more than him, he says you're not worthy of me. Now, what does that make him? If it was anyone else who made that, if I came to the front of this pulpit and said, if you love your families more than me, you've got it wrong. I'd lose a congregation pretty quickly, wouldn't I? Why? Because I'm like you. I'm a person just like you. But when Jesus says, if you, don't, if you love your father, your mother, your families, yourself more than him, it's perfectly valid because of who he is. So when it comes to those things that are precious, yes, our families, our mothers are precious. We are to honour them. And in honouring them, as I've said, you honour the Lord. But there is one who far exceeds those people around us regardless of who they are, and even ourselves. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have him, you have the most precious thing the universe has. Our love for Jesus should reveal itself most prominently in our lives, above everything else that we love. If he is indeed precious to you, then consider the response here that Pharaoh gives to Joseph. We're going to read now what Pharaoh does with Joseph. He has now looked at Joseph and said, Joseph, you're the most important person to me in my whole kingdom. Now I'm going to show you how important you are. And so as we read this, I would like for us to consider what we've done with Jesus in our lives. Is Jesus prominently honoured in my life by the things that I say, the things that I do? Is he, does he come to the forefront when I speak to people that are in the world, when they see me, when they, when they interact with me, are they getting this, this vibe? Are they getting the picture that he's that important? Or are they hearing that other things are more important to me? Have a look at how Pharaoh honours Joseph. Look at verse 41 and think about your life in Jesus. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, See, I have seeked thee over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took off his ring from his hand and put it upon Joseph's hand and arrayed him in vestures of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him to ride in the second chariot which he had and they cried before him, Bow the knee. And he made him ruler over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without thee shall no man lift up his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnathaniah. And he gave him to wife Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. And Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Now, what an honor. A few days before, he was languishing in a prison. No good clothes. He wasn't wearing a ring, that's for sure. He wasn't wearing gold around his neck. He wasn't honoured by, by anyone. Joseph has now gone from prison, from the lowest 
place in society to now be ruler over all of Egypt. That's not a bad promotion, is it? He now wore Pharaoh's ring, his signet ring, which represented the power and authority of Pharaoh. You know those rings that people, when they, when they put it on the wax to seal a document, that had Pharaoh's insignia on it. He wore the finest linen. He had a gold chain around his neck. He rode in a royal chariot next to Pharaoh. And as Joseph rode with Pharaoh throughout all the, the cities and towns of Egypt, they called on everyone to bow the knee, not to Pharaoh, to Joseph. Nothing could be done in Egypt without Joseph's approval. In addition to this, he gave Joseph an Egyptian royal name. He caused him to be married into not just the royal, royal royalty, but royal priesthood. Joseph was now not only royalty, but he was a priestly royal. So my first question to us this morning is, how, look at the honour that, that Pharaoh bestowed upon Joseph. Because he, he cherished him. He realised how valuable he was to him. How much do we honour the Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ? Do we honour him the same way? Is he the most precious thing to us this morning? Do you see the way Pharaoh honours Joseph and he even parades him around all the cities of Egypt and says, bow the knee to him. Is it a picture of your life? Is it a picture of, of you with your saviour? Do you parade him around and say, look how wonderful he is. You should bow the knee to him. He is perfect. He is the most precious thing that I have. The one who delivered the perfect gospel. He was faithful in all things. The one who is holy and wise and loving. Have you honoured the Lord Jesus Christ in your life that same way? Do people even know how much you depend upon him? Today we are called to honour our mothers, but we should honour them always, the Bible says, because he commanded it. He told us to honour our mother and our father. And once again, in honouring them, we honour him by obeying him. Jesus simply tells us, if you love me, you will obey my commands. In this series, I've often shared with you, and this, this picture keeps coming back over and uh, over and over again, that Joseph has been given to us. And what happened to Joseph is a picture of Jesus Christ. Joseph is a picture of Jesus. And you might say, well, how is he a picture of Jesus? Well, that's not a perfect picture, but I want you to think about how what happened to Joseph was a foretelling of what God was going to do with his own son. Joseph was declared full of wisdom and the Spirit of God. Jesus is full of the Spirit and the wisdom of God. He is the wisdom of God. He is the knowledge of God. He is the word of God. Joseph has authority and was given authority by Pharaoh over all of Egypt. You know who has authority over all things? Jesus does. There is no name higher than his. 
Joseph bears and was given the, the signet ring of the highest power in the land to identify that he was royalty now. He wears royal garments and gold. Now Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He doesn't wear one crown, he wears many crowns. He is covered with perfectly white linen. Joseph rides right next to Pharaoh in the royal chariot. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. Pharaoh has all and calls on all people to bow the knee to Joseph in honour of him. While Joseph is given a royal name, Jesus already has a royal name. And God has called on every person to bow the knee to him. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. I just want to share some passages with you just to emphasize this beautiful picture that we have of Christ that now is revealed to us in the life of Joseph. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. It says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's a beautiful passage, isn't it? God the Father exalts his Son and says every knee should bow to him now. He is worthy. Joseph had married into a priestly family. He was made to marry the daughter of one of their high priests. And he was appointed to be over all the house and kingdom of Pharaoh because only he was worthy for such a position. And this is exactly what we see with Jesus Christ. He has been appointed over the household of God and is the high priest already because he only he is worthy. Look at Hebrews chapter 3 with me. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1 to 6. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1. Now listen to these words carefully. Because something is revealed in this passage about the identity of Christ. It says there, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the holy calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, Inasmuch as he who had built the house had more honour than the house. For every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are. If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm until the end. Did you get the, the meaning of that passage? Moses was a faithful servant in all of God's house. But you know what? Jesus owns the house. 
He built the house. And he's faithful in his father's house. And who owns the house? God owns the house. God is the owner of the house. And so it's telling us here that Jesus, unlike Moses, Moses was faithful, but he was simply a servant working in the house. But Jesus is the owner of the house. And that points us to his identity as God. Therefore, Jesus counted worthy, much more worthy than Moses. And we are called to bow the knee to him because he is literally God manifest to this world. What's more, have a look at the very next verse in Genesis chapter 41, verse 46. Have a look, let's have a look at the age that Joseph presents himself to Pharaoh here to commence his work to save Egypt. Genesis 41, verse 46 says, And Joseph was, how old? 30 years old. You reckon that's a coincidence? Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. How old was Jesus when he commenced his ministry? You know, when, when John the Baptist baptized him in the, in the river Jordan and he came up and his father said from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When he began his ministry, he was 30. So we see a pattern here. We see a pattern and Joseph becomes a picture of Jesus. We see that even though he is in a land that's even foreign to him, when he, was, when he was sold off into slavery, he was sold off into Egypt, and the first place, he, first place he arrives is Potiphar's house. Potiphar sees the grace, the wisdom, the nature of him, and he goes, all right, I'm going to give you all of my house. You look after everything. I'm going to trust you with everything. And the Bible tells us that Potiphar, all he really cared about was what's for dinner tonight. All he worried about was, he didn't worry about it. He just looked at what the food was on his table. He had entrusted his whole house the management of everything that he owned, everything that was precious to him, he gave to Joseph. Then Joseph finds himself in prison. And what does the, the captain of the prison guard do? He entrusts everything to Joseph. And now we have Pharaoh, the most powerful person probably on the planet at that stage. He looks at Joseph and says, you know what? I'm going to hand over everything to you. I want you to look after everything. What have you handed over to Christ? We say we've given him our souls, right? We say we've entrusted our souls to Jesus to save me and give me eternal life. And you say, how wonderful that is. But then we get so caught up in the day-to-day niggly stuff and we say, no, Jesus can't take care of that. No, I have to worry about this myself. I have to do this thing. I can't trust him. And so we stress and we worry and we, and we waste time because we have not entrusted our lives to him. And that's the problem. But let's see what happens. Let's see the result of Pharaoh's decision. Verse 47 then says, And in the seven plenteous years, the earth brought forth by handfuls. And he gathered up all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt, and laid up the food in the cities, the food of the fields, which was round about every city, laid he up in the same. And Joseph gathered corn as the sand of the sea, very much, until he left, he left, which means he stopped numbering, he stopped counting, there was so much. 
for it was without number. And so the Lord blessed Egypt with plenty during those seven years, just as he had said. And Joseph reaped and stored and was faithful in Pharaoh's house. But the Lord then also blesses Joseph on another level. Look at verse 50 to 52. It says, And unto Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, which Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bare unto him. And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For God said, He hath made me forget all my toil in all my father's house. And the name of the second called he Ephraim. For God hath caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Mm. That's familiar those two names for you? Two half-tribes of Joseph. For seven years, Joseph collected and was over and responsible for the collection of 20% of the bumper harvest. The Lord gave him much during those seven years. Verse 53 then says, In the seven years of plenteousness that was in the land of Egypt were ended. And the seven years of dearth began to come, according as Joseph had said. And the dearth was in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. And when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said unto all the Egyptians, Go unto Joseph, what he saith to you do. That's a lovely picture of telling people, Go to Jesus and just do what he told you to do. And it says in verse 56, And the famine was over all the face of the earth. And Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold unto the Egyptians. And the famine waxed sore in the land of Egypt. And all countries came into Egypt to Joseph for to buy corn, because that the famine was so sore in all lands. Not only were the people affected of Egypt by this famine, but all the nations around them too. The news of Egypt's storehouses must have spread throughout everywhere because while they were suffering as well, they go, where are we going to go to get food? And they must have all heard. Egypt has been storing up food for the last seven years. We've heard about these massive silos they have of grain. And now we've heard they're selling them to other countries as well. Once again, we see that Joseph spoke truly, but because of that, of that truth and that faithfulness, we see this bounty. We see this huge overflow of God's grace. And we know this in detail because we have it in our, in our Bibles. You know, Joseph spoke truly. Pharaoh put his trust in that word. And Pharaoh reaped the benefit from trusting Joseph. And this is the word that we have in front of our hands. We have in our hands. We've been given the word perfectly by God. The question now is, am I going to trust that word? Am I going to put my trust in the word of God? Because if I do, there is blessing. You know, one day, the world will experience seven years of terrible famine. Seven years. A time when, the, when there will be such a, a drought, but it won't necessarily be a drought of just bread. 
although it will be a drought of bread, but something much more precious than bread, the word of God. Jesus said that man should not live by bread alone, but by every mouth of every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Correct? What is that word? The word is the, that word which you are holding in your hands now. One day, there will be a, a, a famine of that. The word of God tells us in great detail what he intends to do in the future. What will come upon the land? You see, Joseph had given Pharaoh the interpretation of a dream, which said, the next 14 years this is what's going to happen to you. The Bible gives us in great detail what's going to come to this world. And what God is going to do in response to man's rebellion against him. There's going to come a famine. A famine of God's word. A complete famine. You know, today we have this luxury of having the Bible in many different forms. Huh? We can have it on your, on your phone, on your computer. We have you know, printed you know, versions of it. We can print 24-7 Bibles. In fact, the Bible is the most, you know, the, the most popular book ever, ever printed and still out, outsells everything else. It's available in more languages now than any other time in the history of the world. But you know what's, what's sad? The world is losing its appetite for the word. The world is losing its appetite for the bread that comes down from God and would rather trust the words of others, of earthly philosophies and wisdom, because they sound better to them. Even those today who say they believe in the Bible have heaped upon themselves teachers that just tell them stuff they want to hear for their itching ears. Most churches have now forsaken the word of God in one form or another. Most churches have, are not preaching the gospel as it tells it. Most churches have forsaken the pure word of God for counterfeits. Why? They've replaced purity with readability. Readability and ease and the good how it sounds nicely to my ears is more important to people than the purity of God's word. Corrupt in the very words that are declared to be pure and holy. Psalm 12, 6, if you haven't read it before, says, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. That's how pure he regards his own words. So how do we regard Bibles that chop out dozens and dozens of verses? Whose main aim when they've translated it is to make it easy to read. I'll tell you something. The Word of God was not designed to be easy to read. The Word of God was to tell us as it is. And sometimes it's very difficult to listen to because we are fallen creatures that need to be reminded of our true nature. But one day, even though we have this huge abundance, we can see that people are becoming less and less tolerant of it. One day there will be a great famine in this world because the world will reject the bread that God has provided and instead, they'll say, you know what? I prefer, instead of bread, I prefer those, remember those cucumbers? Those melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. Remember those ones back in Egypt? 
They tasted so good. They were so sweet, even though they were in bondage. And they'll say, we don't want this bread anymore. Like the Israelites did, you remember? They had this, this situation where they had been saved by God. God was giving them bread. And they said, we don't want this bread anymore. We want, we want what the world was giving us before. We're tired of your bread. We want something that tastes nice. That sounds good. Turn to Amos with me. Amos chapter 8. We're almost done. Amos chapter 8, verse 9 to 12. Amos, one of the smaller prophets towards the end of the Old Testament. Have you got this one, Adam? You've done Amos? You've done Amos. There you go. You should know where it is. Amos chapter 8, and we'll read from verse 9 to 12. Listen carefully. This is, what's, this is what's being predicted, okay? This is what's being foretold. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord God, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in the clear day. And I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation, and I will bring upon bring up sackcloth upon all loins and baldness upon every head. You know, you'd shave your head when you're in mourning, by the way. And I will make it as the mourning of an only son, and the end thereof is a bitter day. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of the hearing of the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea and from north even to the east and they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord and shall not find it. What a terrible day that would be. People will desire to see, oh, I want to find out what, what the Bible is actually saying now. I want, I want to know what it says. But they won't be able to find anyone to explain it to them. They'll struggle to hear it. We call this time the time of tribulation. A time when the church will be removed. That's why they'll have no one to explain it to them. The church won't be here. And they're going to be looking for someone to ask, well, where is it? Where do I find the truth now? They'll be running to and fro because the earth is going to be, the Bible says, reeling from left to right. There'll be no one to share it with them. They'll remember. Do you remember that guy that shared the gospel with me those, those few years ago? I'm sure he said something about believing. But what do I do? What, what do I have to do now? I mean, there's a guy telling me that I have to get a mark on my right hand to honour this, this new world leader. And I have to put him the most highest above all things. I have to worship him. But what do I do? What happens if I do that? Is that okay? And now what do I do? Now we see a turning away from the Bible in our days. And so it's more important than ever that we hold on to this word of truth, to trust Jesus with our souls and with everything that we have 
that we become those storehouses of the Word of God, that when people come to us, we can break open those doors and the Word of God can be shared with people around us because they're starving now. They are starving now. They're, they're, there is drought now, the Word of God already. We should be the places where the Word of God is stored that even if they take these Bibles away from us, we can still speak those words. You know, Joseph was such a, a person for that time, for his time. God called him to be faithful. He gave him the truth and Joseph shared the truth without fear or favour. The question now is, are we people for our time? For this time? Are we the receptacles of truth? So we can give to those who are starving and in need. Are we wise enough to know the word of God? to live the word of God and to share the word of God with those who are in darkness. Why are mothers so important? Well, mothers are a wonderful picture of being receptacles of the word of God and then feeders. They feed their children. God blesses them and they pass that on to their children. They, pass, they, they can pass on their faith, their hope in Jesus Christ, the word of God to their children. Their children can look at them and see the picture of Jesus Christ. You know, the, the Apostle Paul has his father-son relationship with Timothy, the young pastor, and he's giving advice in those letters that he writes to him. And he says, he says to Timothy, you're like a son to me. Remember to do this and this while you're here. But he credits the salvation of Timothy, not to himself, but to his mother and his grandmother. He says in 2 Timothy 1.3, he says, I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience that without ceasing, ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day. Greatly desiring to see thee, speaking to Timothy, being mindful of thy tears that I might be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, I am persuaded that in thee also. So the faith that, that Timothy had, this godly man who was recorded in the Bible, he had because his grandmother had it. His mother had it. And then they passed it on to him. You know, like Lois and Eunice, mothers and grandmothers can be a source of God's truth and faith for their children and grandchildren, for that next generation. Like I said in the beginning, God has given women certain things that men do not possess. And one is this ability to nurture, this ability to feed. Throughout all of history, men have gone out working in the fields. And who has been the one to who've been the ones to look after the children, to grow them up, to teach them? It's been the mothers. Mothers, you are so important because you've been called for a very important job that only you can do and that's to be the storehouses of faith, of God's truth, a demonstration of what real faith is like because your children will watch you as they grow and they will learn to imitate you. The first place they will come to know about the love of God is in the home. 
when they look at their mums and they look at their dads, but especially mums because they're with them the most. Joseph may be a wonderful picture of Jesus Christ. He is. God's given us this awesome example. But remember, women, that every woman, and man for that matter, is called to be a picture of Christ first to your own families. First to your own families. Be that picture of Christ to your children, to your families, because if you don't share that picture with them, if they don't see Christ in you, where are they going to see it? When they go out in the world? No. Parents, mothers, you are the storehouses of grain for those lean years. Remember, difficult times come. We live in a fallen world. And you have been given the wisdom by God to store up the truth of God that you might share it with those who need it, especially your children. Times of drought are common in our world. But don't let drought become the standard for your family. I pray that all of our families are places where the storehouses of God's truth and blessing flow freely and that our children in our homes and in this church will see the abundant love and grace of God. God bless you. Thank you.